you know, and they encountered some unexpected geology, right? Oh, that's exactly what you want to encounter. That's a sense I want to hear. (laughs) (laughs) So they encountered some pockets of sand and glacial till, right? And uh, when, you know, that was, that was entirely different from the silt. You wound up with blowouts. You wound up what having is a pressure blowout. Blowout is oh, so these tunnels are pressurized while they're under construction to keep the water out, right? Sure. Um, and so what happens in a blowout? Let me skip ahead in the notes a little bit. A blowout is when um, essentially the air finds a way out of the tunnel into the riverbed, and then it forms a big bubble that like oh, goes, it's a queef. It's a queef. Yeah, it goes straight up out of the river and <laughs> you get a like queef, a little geyser, us. right? It's a queef. Ah. So it, now, blowouts are a particularly nasty way to get killed. There's a number of ways to get killed in a blowout if you're a sandhawk, right? The air pressure drops really rapidly, so you might get oh, the you get bends. The bends. You get oh. the bends. That's one oh. option. The other option is that once the air pressure drops, the water rushes in and you drown, right? Oh, I'd say that one. Now, the third option, the third option is you get sucked up with the air pressure, and then you wound up embedded in the riverbed. Fuck no, 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 thank you. Give me the bends. Yeah, I'll take the bends. I'll I'll, I'll risk the bends at that point. Now, there was one guy. This is in a different tunnel. This was. uh, How the fuck do you die in quicksand underwater? That's the worst (laughs) shit I've ever heard. There was one guy when they were building the tunnel for what's now the two and three train uh, in 1916. There was a sandhog named Marshall Maybe, right? Who got sucked out of the tunnel while the, uh, in a blowout. And he was expelled from the East River in a 25-foot geyser. Fuck no. Nope. <laughs> some guys, That's what the kids want these days. Some guys... <laughs> I, I was looking for the drop as you said that. <laughs> was he, he was picked up by some guys in a passing barge. They took him to the hospital. They found he only had some bruises. He was back to work the next day. <laughs> Just the guy a day off. Nice. Fuck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the only thing I have to say is suck this place dry. <laughs> if you think we have time. <laughs> so anyway, the, uh, uh, in the East River tunnels, they had so many blowouts they had to start staging barges above the tunnel head on the river to dump tons of cement Why? and You're clay. Bump your head when you get spat mm-hmm. out of there. <laughs> Funk. So that, that barge would, if there was a blowout, they would immediately just come dump. home slurring. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I sustained minor brain damage, boss. Said it was fine. <laughs> yeah. the, the, uh, the barges would be able to dump cement and clay over the blowout immediately to, you know, oh, uh, make the, uh, the problem less bad, although it didn't solve it, right? Mm. Um, you just still get the bends, and also, like, your, both your eardrums just get, like, fucked. Yeah, you're yes. fucked. You the, you get you get turned into Elmo at that point. Mm. The the media <laughs> the Elmo? media did greatly exaggerate difficulties building the tunnels. They were very difficult to build, but the media was like, "Oh yeah, they killed twenty guys a day here, right?" <laughs> um, but you know they they eventually shut up when the Pennsylvania Railroad hired our friend Ivy Ledbetter Lee, who, as we mentioned in two episodes ago. Or the first Penn Central episode. Oh, the He's Nazi guy. The Nazi guy, yeah. The the guy. Guy. He did, he yeah, did yeah, PR yeah. for the Nazis later. Um, he developed an innovative new way of quelling the press, which was called issuing a press release, right? Oh, I thought you were going to say which was called murdering. He was the guy who understood that the journalist is at heart lazy, and so yeah. if you give them an article that's already written, they'll print it. Exactly. Oh, wait. Well, the, uh... 
There you go. Yeah. So this is this method has been used to great success by corporations ever since. Created a generation of lazy stenographers who call themselves journalists. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so the East River <laughs> tunnels were completed in 1908. Um, this left the question of the station, right? Um, which is where we have to introduce an architecture firm. Uh oh. Oh no. So this is Charles Fallen McKim, right? He was the son of Quaker abolitionists. This is William Rutherford Meade, a cousin of Rutherford Hayes, who was a questionably legitimate president of the United States who ended Reconstruction. And this is, st- this is Stanford White, a uh, pedophile. Um, <laughs> of such things are architecture firms made. Two, two prodigious moustaches, an extremely well-supported dome of a head, and also uh, pedophilia. Yes. <laughs> Together they formed an architecture firm called McKim, Mead and White, which is like a whiskey. Yeah, which was to become one of the most influential and respected architecture firms ever. Is it now, still around? Sort of. Oh, has it been like Not, amalgamated into something that's like six letters or whatever? No, it got um it, it, the firm was renamed um at some point. Load-bearing nonsense. And it may mm. or may <laughs> not. I I don't I don't think I don't think they exist in any meaningful form anymore. Okay, sure. Um, mm. Right, but they uh, their last like notable work was like 1960 something. Um, oh, really? Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I mean, well, depending on who you are, you might argue their last notable work was like 1895. Um, <laughs> New money trash. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, they got their start designing houses in what's called the shingle style, right? Throughout New yeah, England, I hate and, it. Yeah, and like the eighteen eighties. Shingle style. I like shingle style. Why? This is the this is the William Lowe House up here, right? Which is the most notable one. Here's the Isaac Bell House down here. I like the top Um, one. I don't like the bottom one. Good news. The William Lowe House was raised in 1962. Hooray! Oh my god. So, (laughs) um, and they did a couple buildings you might call Richardsonian Romanesque. Uh, but they really made it big when they won the contract to design the Boston Public Library too, which I quite like. Hmm. They they won the contract to design Madison Square Garden two, right? Madison Over Square here. Gardener, yes. <laughs> Madison um, Cube Garden, come on, it's right there. <laughs> I, Vincent Scully, uh, the architecture critic, um, saw the uh, once said about the William Lowe House is sort of once a climax and kind of conclusion for McKim, Mead and White, um, you know, since it was uh, almost, he said, it was almost immediately abandoned by the more conventionally conceived columns and pediments of McKim, Mead and White's later buildings. Essentially, they stopped doing original things once they realized they could make money just doing Bozar, right? Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> I like this fucking like big Renaissance palazzo up here. Oh uh, yeah, I mean that—that's Madison Square Garden too. It's—it's—it's it's, it's a fun little building, right? Well, not a little building; it's a big building, right? It's a fun but, little uh, big building. Yeah, so With a campanile on the top, you know. They started doing much more formal, like Bazaar-style style buildings because they—they—they—they had much more prestigious clients. They made a lot more money. They could do bigger buildings. So stuff like the entire campus of Columbia University, for instance. Um. <laughs> Here's the agricultural building at the World's Columbian Exhibition in Chicago, 
which Louis Sullivan said set back American architecture by 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> so and the Brighton Pavilion, but less imaginative. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, the firm only got more prestigious after something called the trial of the century. And that was Ooh. the criminal trial after- Oh, this is his favorite thing. Yeah. That was the criminal <laughs> trial after Stanford White was murdered by Harry Kendall Thaw on the roof of his own building, Madison Square Garden 2, in front of an audience uh, for being a pedophile. I mean, yeah, you Victimless crime. Yeah. Yeah, Victimless yeah, crime. Yeah. Advanced <laughs> form of self-defense. Uh, yeah. No jury it, it, would convict. It's a little more complicated than that. Harry Kendall Thaw also had some proclivities. Wasn't someone fucking someone's sisters? Uh, uh, they were no. like fighting over a child at the time. Mm -hmm. Great. Stan oh, no, Stanford White had fucked uh, Harry Kendall Thaw's wife while go. she was 16. Oh, oh wait, I no. know about this because I know about Jeez. the fucking wife too. She was yeah. like an early celebrity, right? Um, yes. Uh, fucking uh, 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 Evelyn Nesbitt, right? Yes. Yes, Evelyn Holy Nesbitt. I'm Jesus, pulling that shit from that was yeah, amazing. Wow. No, 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 yeah. because she, I, I read um, uh, Greg Jenner's book, Dead Famous, A History of Celebrity, and, and Evelyn Nesbitt and her fucking like, pedophilic love triangle is like, sort of the prototypical wow, early 20th century, uh, like, debutante celebrity thing. It's like, she was one of the first models, even. Yeah, yeah. oh wow. I mean, it nothing was, changes. Yeah. The, the, the murder itself was... Um, so when, when Thaw shot White um, in front of a whole bunch of people, As they all did. thought it was a oh, fun... Oh, he shot him. That's disappointing. Yeah. I was hoping it would have been knife. There we are. Well, mm. they all thought it was some kind of fun party trick, and they all applauded. <laughs> oh, like and a barrel I realized, oh, wait, that was a murder. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he, he, he approached and produced a pistol, said, you've ruined my wife, which is the oh weirdest God, possible line. thing you could say, and then uh, shot him twice in the face and once in the chest. Now, this, this happened- I gotta, I gotta ask a question, though. Why stop at three? You're already like, all right, <laughs> oh, I'm going to this dude on a rooftop. With, like, with, with a 1906 pistol, you're taking your life in your hands for each time you pull <laughs> that trigger. I know right? that's true, but um, like... Yeah, well, you know, I'm cranking the big knob that says gunshots to see if I get applause or not, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so the, um, uh, this happened in the middle of the Penn Station project, which is also another interesting thing, is that Harry Kendall Thaw was the son of a major... Pennsylvania Railroad freight forwarder, a little awkward. Um, <laughs> mm, kind of like, uh, you know, the planning meetings are a bit weird once, like, one of the architects has been shot in the face <laughs> by one of the clients. <laughs> oh, no, you just do a weekend, you just do a weekend of Bernie's type of thing. It's fine. <laughs> so, but when they were, when they were designing the station, right? So Alexander Cassett didn't know shit about architecture or architecture firms but he wanted to rival the New York Central's under-construction Grand Central Terminal. And Samuel Ree suggested, why don't you use McKim, Mead, and White? Um, and this was a match made in heaven, because Cassett didn't know shit about architecture, and McKim, uh, Mead, and White had never designed a train station. Hell yeah. <laughs> perfection. Absolute perfection. The blandest possible station, please. Yeah. <laughs> So, Cassett's intention, you have a grand entrance to New York City for long-distance intercity travelers and only intercity and long-distance travelers, right? Commuters would, of course, continue using Exchange Place for convenient ferries and the new Hudson and Manhattan Railroad tubes to access the financial district, which is where the jobs were, right? 
So the station was designed as such. Uh, now, Charles McKim got the broad outlines of the station and talked uh, Cassett out of the most stupid things he suggested. Put a hotel on top. No. Hey, it worked uh, for some Pancras. Yeah. Well, uh. it worked for most things. And, 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 and Charles McKim was like, no, no, we're going <laughs> to we're going to keep this low slung and Greco Roman as fuck. Right. Um, it's a fucking um, it's a curia for trains. Yes. Those big arch windows. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he, he talked him out of the hotel on top. He topped he talked him out of cheaping out on the main waiting room. Because Cassett wanted to keep this low slung instead of having the massive Diocletian windows. Um, now, the the responsibility for the design of the station was divided vertically, right? Everything below street level was the railroad's problem, and everything above street level was the architect's problem, right? Um, and there's a lot of stuff that wasn't worked out until last minute. So, for example... It wasn't until they were actually building the platforms that someone was like, you know, these should probably be high level platforms and not flat platforms that are like on the ground, right? Where you have to oh, step whoops. up onto the train, right? Um, the overall design was, again, it was focused on one type of traffic, the one that was supposed, the railroad expected to increase indefinitely, which is the long distance passenger, right? Mm. Um, that seems sustainable. Yeah, obviously. Uh there, you're never going to have a reduction in long distance rail traffic. Never, um, never, never, ever. So, so let's, you, you've prepared a little like virtual tour for us here. I got a virtual tour of the Ooh. old Penn Station, right? So let's say you enter through the front door here, 